turn our Bibles together to Job chapter 9. As we continue our study in the book of Job together, we left off last time a few verses into chapter 9 where Job was now responding to Bildad, who was trying to argue predominantly, as we said, kind of the the justice of God and was really to a great degree kind of overemphasizing one attribute of God's character over his other attributes, kind of failing to recognize that God has this marvelous ability to be everything of who he is in all of his attributes, and none of them ever contradict one another, and none of them ever in any way cause him to have to compromise one over the other. And that's what sets God apart really from humanity in a lot of ways, uh, is that God is able to be completely just, completely righteous, completely holy, and at the same time be completely good and merciful and kind and gracious and loving, and he never has to compromise his justice to exercise his love. He never has to compromise his love to exercise his justice, that he's found ways to be who he is, which sets him apart and all of the awesomeness of, of who he is. And we get into great mistakes sometimes when we try and tend to overemphasize one attribute or maybe one aspect of God's character and nature. And you'll, you'll find a lot of times where people kind of fly to extremes, uh, even from what I've seen in certain uh, maybe uh, doctrinal approaches they want to take, certain theologies that people develop in their little camps. They go way to one side, and a lot of times when you really boil it down, what they're tending to do is they're they're kind of overemphasizing one aspect of God's attributes. Either it's all about the sovereignty of God and the justice of God, and, and they fly in way to one extreme, uh, and they kind of ignore the fact that God's given man also choice and that God's merciful and God's given to humanity free will. And because they, they can't reconcile in their little minds how God could uh, be doing many things at once and that these things, a lot of the attributes of God and the things God set in order uh, can run like parallel lines and, and they have no problem running next to one another. And from God's perspective, it all lines up and it all works out. But because we can't seem to reconcile it, we tend to do that. We kind of go way to one side or way to the other side, and that's when we can really actually start to get off track theologically rather than just reading God's word for what it says. And you know, and, and let me just say one of the safest ways to develop a theology is to just read God's word for what it says. And when you come to promises, appreciate and believe and embrace the promises. When you come to warnings and cautions, appreciate and embrace the warnings and the cautions and uh, whether it is how God works or God's nature, beware of extremes. And Bildad was kind of flying to that extreme of overemphasizing God's justice and his authority, again, as he was trying to help Job reconcile his sufferings. And as we come to chapter 9, Job then starts kind of to respond to this as he has been with his different counselors and friends who are trying to help him to understand what he's going through, not in a very helpful way. And Job was basically answering uh, in the beginning of chapter 9, saying, look, I, I don't dispute with you that God is just. I don't dispute with you that God is indeed holy and righteous. I, I wouldn't argue that. And Job himself kind of goes into a uh, brief time of expressing the greatness of God and the awesomeness of of God as we left off last time. For example, we just glance back into verse 
5, he there was speaking about God's greatness, saying he removes the mountains and they do not know. In other words, the idea is God is so great, uh, he can literally in an instant pick up a mountain and just remove it and nobody would even know what happened or what God did. I mean, that is just the same God who brought these mountains and massive mountain ranges into existence can literally uh, cause a mountain range to just disappear if that would be within his working or his intention. He says, verse 6, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars and spreads out the heavens uh, and treads on the waves of the sea. Again, because God created all these things and controls all these things, he rules over them. And we left off there the last part of verse 8 last time. Verse 9 we pick up where he then goes on to speak more about just, again, the, the power and the greatness of God. He says of God, he made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades. And there he's talking about different stars and constellations that exist uh, in the galaxies. He speaks about the chambers of the south, which seems to refer to uh, a group of stars and constellations in a particular galaxy that we don't even fully understand or have the ability to be able to see. We know their existence is there, but the ability to understand them to this day um, is still completely lacking. We're continually learning things. And again, I mean, if you just begin to just look a little bit into some of the aspects of the the galaxies and the solar systems i mean the reality that you know even our sun which is not the largest star that does exist i mean you can fit multitudes and multitudes uh, of just the planet earth into our own sun and our sun is not even the largest star that exists and again when you just try and start wrapping your mind around that you mean think about the earth seems like a pretty big thing to us, the globe itself, and then you take that and, you know, multitudes and multitudes of earths can fit inside the sun, and the sun isn't even the largest star that exists out there, and the Bible tells us that God literally just spoke these things into existence. He just flung these stars out into where they were and kind of hung them out there in the solar system where they are. And they are just a few of what are just galaxies upon galaxies. And again, God not only created these things, but keep in mind, as all these things are in the midst of movement, God's steering these things around. I mean, could you imagine if just for one minute God fell asleep on the job and, you know, just didn't pay attention and any of these things, you know, were kind of left out from under his care, the the cataclysmic events that would take place and why it's going to be so easy when God ultimately does bring great cataclysmic judgments, which we read about in the book of Revelation that will happen during the time of the tribulation, where basically to a degree, uh, God just stops steering everything perfectly. Uh, and in a sense, he just kind of lets things go where they would go. If God weren't keeping you know, constellations and meteorites and asteroids in the way that he is to take care of all these things, and again, just reminding us about the greatness of God, evidence in his creative power in this incredible universe that we exist in and are constantly learning more about. He says, verse 10 of God, he does great things past finding out, Job says. Yes, wonders without number. The idea is his wonders that he performs in creation, his wonders that he performs, and his acts, and his miracles, and his works. Uh, he says we can't even calculate them. 
they're beyond our understanding. If you remember at the end of the book of John, when John was writing his gospel, he speaks about how uh, if we were able to even, he says, record all of the works of the Lord, he says there wouldn't be enough room to record all those things. John chapter 20, verse 30 says, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. That is just the miracles of his three-year earthly ministry. And it says, But these, that is those we have record of in John's gospel, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and believing may have life in his name. So uh, again, the idea there's just w- what has been given to us, even in the gospel accounts, even what's described for us in the word of God. Uh, these are just a small degree of things that God's chosen by his Holy Spirit to give us record of. Uh, they're not an exhaustive list of the wonders and the works of God, the ways that God's worked throughout human history, the way God continues to work so many times that we're you know, not even conscious of or aware that he's doing so many wonders. It says his great uh, wonders are without number. And he says there as well in verse 10 at the beginning part of it that God does great things that are past finding out. In other words, Job's testifying the ways of God and how he works are often beyond our limited understanding. That is how God works and his ways many a times We don't, and let me go beyond that to say, and we won't always understand what he's doing. We don't have the ability, even the greatest of minds or the deepest of research or all that we could do. There is such a gap between God who is infinite and you and I as people who are finite. uh, The ways of God are beyond our limited human understanding. There's always going to be a degree of mystery. That's why the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Paul declares there, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable, that is, you can't search it all out, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So, you know, in some ways, that's what makes God continually marvelous and interesting because you can continue to seek God and search out God's ways and worship and adore God, and you're never going to get bored. You know, that may happen with a human relationship. You feel like, well, this person's kind of getting boring after. Well, that's never going to happen with God. You'll keep seeing more and learning more and discovering more. You'll never be unsatisfied, and God will keep blowing your mind again and again and again and again. In fact, I love Ephesians chapter 2, where it tells us there that in the ages to come, we'll continually be learning more about the riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. In other words, you do understand that one of the aspects— of the eternal dimension and the heavenly realm is we will be constantly learning and discovering more and more. It will be an ongoing process of revelation in the eternal age upon age to come because there is so much to know about God. That is every time you look to the throne of God and you see God in your perfect glorified eternal body, which is made for the heavenly dimension to be in God's eternal presence, which isn't limited like these earthly bodies of flesh right now, these weak tents that we live in that are cracked and broken and fallen in their condition, we're going to look to the throne of God and we're going to see things about God that we've never seen before. 
Again, do you ever wonder why continuously in heaven they keep falling down on their face before God and casting their crowns and going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come? Because every time they look to the throne of God, they see something else about God and his nature that makes them go, holy, holy. In other words, the idea of holy is set apart. There is no one like you. There are things about you that are so incredible. And as you constantly see that, it's what prompts them again to worship and give adoration and praise towards God. So we're constantly learning here. We'll be continually learning throughout all of eternity because of how great God is. And I think there are going to be things God's going to be showing us that we are going to be astonished about all throughout eternity. I can't wait to get to heaven and actually have the master teacher himself, Jesus, start teaching us the Bible. And I'm going to be out of a job in a good way. And I can't, I can't wait to sit at the feet of Jesus. And I envision in some ways, you know, we're going to be at his feet. And he's going to say, let's talk about John 3.16. And he's going to quote John 3.16. He's going to say, now let me tell you what that really means. Let me give you some insights that you never understood just about this one verse and for the next thousand years you know we'll be sitting there you know hearing him explain things and being astonished as he explains aspects of things that we never fully grasp even in our great little intellects here on this earth and our own spiritual maturity and you know it's kind of sad sometimes that you know again the bible says you know knowledge puffs up and love builds up you know, something really sad sometimes when any one of us is a Christian or certain Bible teachers start to think, man, they have just got everything wired and they know for sure what everything means when the reality is the Bible says, you know, his ways are past finding out. The ways that God's way, there is always going to be an element of mystery. And if we're not humble enough to accept that, we're really always going to be missing something in our spiritual life. That's what makes God attractive to worship. When God becomes small enough where I've got him fully figured out, he's no longer big enough for me to fall on my face and worship anymore. That's what prompts me. That's what directs you to worship. Is Part of the aspect is, is the mystery and the wonders of the amazing greatness of who God is that we fully don't understand everything about him. We understand enough, and he's constantly giving us more revelation but it's important to realize, like Job says, he does things past finding out because guess what that also means? In these areas of when God's working at times and Job's going through some suffering and hardship and difficulties in his life, and guess what he doesn't grasp? What God's doing. He doesn't understand why God is working the way he is. He, he, he doesn't and he won't, quite honestly, for a good period of time, have any understanding of why God is allowing to happen what's happened, why God allowed to happen in his past, the things that have happened, why presently God was working in the way he was rather than another way. And Job's just acknowledging this. He's, in essence, confessing and acknowledging, look, I don't, I don't understand God's ways, I don't understand why God's working the way that he is. And see, but this is what causes the child of God to walk by faith. That's why the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't live by what we can see and fully understand and perceive, 
Uh, that that kind of way of relating to God never works long term. We live by faith. Lord, I don't understand everything about why you're doing what you're doing or not doing what you're not doing. But Lord, I, I continue to walk by faith and trust you. I, I rely on who you are and I acknowledge humbly, I don't always understand what you're doing, God. But I know that you are at work. He says, verse 11, notice, if he goes by me, in the words Job says, if he passes by or visits me, sometimes he says, I don't even see him. It's almost as if God could sneak up on you. He says, if he moves past, I don't perceive him. In other words, what Job's saying here in connection to what he just did, look, he's saying, I know God's at work, and I understand that God's involved, but he says, sometimes I can't see or perceive what he's doing right now. He says, sometimes he passes by, and I don't even, I don't even see what he's doing. He, he's near to me. I know he's at work. I know he's engaged, but he says, but I, I acknowledge, I don't, see, I don't know what he's doing right now. Lord, I can't see what you're doing. It's like I'm in the dark here. I know you're doing something, but I'm completely in the dark, God. And I don't see why you're doing this, and I don't see what you're doing and why this is happening. He says, verse 12, but if he, that is God, takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to God, what are you doing? We've probably said that a few times, right? (laughs) Job here, again, he says, if God chooses in his almighty power as the all-wise, all-knowing God to take away, remember early in the book when Job lost so many things, it was painful, his children, his livelihood, his wealth, his business, his property, then even his health. I mean, talk about a man who went through great loss. And Job made that statement, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That everything we've received, everything that comes into our life that's good or of any value or worth, he says, it was all given to us by God. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'm going to return. I didn't bring anything with me into this world. God gave me the breath of my lungs and brought me into this world with my heart beating, and I entered into an empty hand, and anything I've received, God gave. But Job also humbly acknowledged together with that, but therefore the Lord also has the right to take away. And it's his freedom and it's his you know uh, right to be able to take out of our lives in the same way he brings things into our lives and he says the lord gives the lord takes away blessed should be the name of the lord job said and here job says again if he takes away the idea is who can hinder him who can stop god if god so chooses that he wants to or needs to remove something from our life Who can hinder him from doing that? He's God. If he for some reason allows or permits something to come to pass whereby something is removed from your life, you're not going to hinder him from doing that if he's the one allowing it or bringing it to pass. It's better to humbly submit to what he's doing and trust that the Lord loves you Maybe hard, maybe confusing, maybe something we don't understand. Lord, why are you removing this? Why are you taking this, you know, person out of my life that was, you know, my spouse for all these years? I love them. And and now, Lord, you're taking them out of my life. You're removing them from a relationship with me because of some illness or maybe some tragedy. But he says, 
you know, if, if he takes away, who, who can hinder him? You, you can't stop the hand of God. You can't hinder what God is doing. If God removes something from your life or someone from your life that maybe you were clinging on to, it's hard and it's difficult. But those are times where we have to trust God. If you're doing it, I don't want to try and hinder you, and, and I can't ultimately hinder you. You have the right to take away, even as you have the right to give and to add into our life. It's hard, but he says, who can say to him in the midst of that, what are you doing? In other words, who would ever have the, the, you know, the right to be able to say, you know, what are you doing, God? And to challenge, the idea is kind of like challenging God's decision. But, but we do do that in our humanity. It's hard. And Job says, but what right really do we have to say to a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful, Lord, what are you doing taking this out of my life? Why would you take this person? Why would you remove this thing that I wanted or that was so important to me in my life? He says, who should say or who can rightfully, the idea is justifiably say, what are you doing, God? What are you doing? I may not understand it, but here's what I can tell you. The Bible tells me that around the throne of God, one of the things they sing continuously is righteous and true are all of your ways. And in the moment we may not see it, and look, that's okay. That's where faith comes into play. But the best thing to do is not to fight against or resist or start to doubt or question God, but just to yield to what God is doing as hard as it is to keep an open hand with everything that's a part of your life on this earth and realize that God is loving, that God is wise, and that, Lord, to say to you, what are you doing, is something I may not have the answer now, but, Lord, I know that you are doing something that somehow lines up with your ultimate perfect plan. And I don't fully see it. And look, we may sometimes, sometimes we don't see it till a month down the road, a year down the road, 10 years down the road. And sometimes there are certain elements we may not see until we're in eternity. And then when we're in eternity, all the questions will be answered as we stand around the throne of God together in our glorified eternal bodies. And we look to the throne of God and then we say, God, yup, everything you did, it, it, act, it wasn't unrighteous, God. It was actually right. It all comes together now, and I see how that was something that was fully righteous. In other words, God wasn't doing anything unfair or unkind uh, in what he did or allowed to come to pass. But that's hard for us now, and and Job's reconciling this in his own emotions and thoughts as he's struggling. Again, he's suffering. He's in hardship. He says, verse 13, God will not withdraw his anger, and the allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him the idea there is if god's not pleased with something or someone then he has the right to humble them in his displeasure he can break the pride of the proud he can break those who are proud and seeking to oppose him by exercising his righteous anger job says verse 14 how then can i answer him and choose my words to reason with him For though if I were righteous, he says, I could not answer him. The idea is I couldn't effectively argue with God. I would beg mercy of my judge. Notice Job did not see how he could effectively challenge what God was doing or what God was allowing to happen in his life. Basically, in verse 14 and 15, Job is saying, who am I to debate with an all-knowing and an all-wise God 
who understands way more and who is the ultimate authority over my life and all things, who is the judge of all mankind. Job says, even if I were right, he says there, even if I were righteous or right, the idea is in some way, if in some way I could even justify, you know, I am right in this one area at least. He says, even in that, it would still be best for me to just humble myself and beg for God's mercy more than anything else. Not to try and bully God or argue with God or change God's mind. He says, it would be best for me, even if somehow I were right, Job says, I realized to just humbly fall down and to beg mercy from this awesome and this almighty God to just embrace and accept what he's doing and trust him ultimately. And the Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. Uh, And Job here understood that. He says, verse 16, and if I called and he did answer me, in other words, if he actually did answer when I called upon him, he says, honestly, I would not believe he was listening to my voice. Now you could tell Job's struggling here. Again, remember, he's in a time of incredible pain. He's living in constant hardship every day. He's struggling to get by. And Job is here wrestling with and wondering if God being so great apparently would even be willing to listen to his thoughts. He said, even if I could get God's attention, even if I could get God to answer me, he says, even if he responded, I don't know if he would even consider what I'm asking of him. He says there in verse 16, he says, I don't know if I believe he would even listen to what I had to say. Now, again, you can tell that Job, as I said, is in his humanity, his emotions, his thoughts. He's really struggling here. Sadly, he's struggling, as we all can sometimes when we're suffering greatly, to even begin to doubt if God would be willing to consider his cry. It's almost as if you can sense Job here saying, you know what, I, I, I don't even know, even if God gave me his attention, I don't think he would even listen to what I have to say anyway. I think he's kind of made up his mind, and this is the lot for me in my life, and, and Job's kind of struggling. I don't even know if God's even willing to listen to me anymore. You know, this reminds me of when uh, the man with leprosy in Mark's gospel came to Jesus, and you remember he came to Jesus in his horrific conditions, suffering with his leprosy, and he fell down before Jesus, and he said to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. In other words, notice his statement there. He didn't doubt the power of Jesus. He didn't doubt the ability that Jesus could miraculously actually make him clean. But his struggle in his suffering and the way he was processing it mentally is he said, Lord, I don't know if you're willing. I, I'm not even sure if you want me to be healed. I'm not even sure if you want me to be better. And, and that was a genuine struggle he was wrestling with when he came to Jesus. He didn't doubt Jesus' ability to do it. What he was confused about and conflicted over is, Lord, I don't know if, if you even want me to be healed. I don't know if it's a part of your will for my life. And again, keep in mind, that man had been struggling tremendously. He had lived for years with people saying certain things to him that was just causing him to wrestle. And again, when we are suffering, it's hard sometimes to think through certain things, to be able to reconcile in our mind. I mean, does God even want to help me? Does he, does he even 
you know, have a willingness to listen to my cry anymore? And it seems that's where Job's at is, again, as he's struggling through this process, as we struggle through the same things as well. Look what he says, verse 17 of God. He says, for he crushes me with a tempest and he multiplies my wounds without a cause. In other words, he says, just the suffering is getting worse and worse. And I don't even know the cause of why I'm suffering so much. He will not, Job says, allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. So Job says, I feel like the pain and the struggle is just growing and growing. And the idea here is he's indicating that he's kind of like starting to have trouble keeping up. You you ever have a time in your life where you're maybe suffering in some way? Maybe it's emotionally or maybe you're suffering physically or just any, you know, hardship that you're going through. And as that season of hardship and suffering becomes prolonged, it goes from a day to two days to a week to two weeks to two months. to And, and just the process of suffering continues. You start to feel like you know, I'm just kind of struggling to keep going. And that's a natural human experience sometimes. Remember Job said the weight of what he was under felt like all the weight of the sands of the earth just pressing down upon him. And this is what he's saying here. He says, I feel like, that my wounds and my suffering are being multiplied. I don't have any answers. And, and he says, I feel like God, you, I feel like you won't even let me catch my breath. I, the idea is they're picturing it like a person who's suffocating or drowning under the misery or, or under their hardship or the suffering they're going through, like an anchor weighing you down. It's like you're trying to keep your head above water, but you got this anchor attached to your ankle and, and you're just constantly trying to keep your head above water. And the whole time, the anchor just every day, every moment, every hour, you're out there in the middle of the sea just treading for water. And you just feel like, I just can't even catch my breath. I feel like I'm drowning here, like I'm suffocating, trying to keep breathing and keep functioning, but feeling like somebody's just constantly constricting you because of you know what you're going through. Again, just so picturesque of what we feel as human beings sometimes when we go through hardship and pain. He says, verse 19, if it's a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. Job says, the one that's strong is not me, it's, it's God. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though if I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, I would prove me perverse. I am blameless, yet I don't know myself, he says. In fact, he says, I despise my life. Again, Job here is struggling with this reality of, again, not understanding, but humble enough to recognize, you know, it's not going to help me to just try and take God to court and proclaim my own righteousness. Job understood what Jeremiah meant in Jeremiah 17 when he said, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and, and who can know it? And Job says, honestly, he says, the only, th- the only thing I do know about myself that I am certain of is I'm a wretch. And, and that I don't deny, Job says. He says, even if I were to try and reason out things, and my own mouth would condemn me in a minute. As soon as I tried to argue my case of, you know, I deserve this or I'm righteous and, and Job, I'm entitled to something, Job says, my own mouth would prove me perverse. He says, though I may think I'm blameless, he says, I, you know, I, 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 one thing I do is I, I despise my life. I, I wish my life wasn't the way it was. Again, Job understood Though a very good and godly man, you know, the, the, the wickedness of his own heart and the depravity of his own humanity. 
He says, it is all one thing. Therefore, I say he, that's God, destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. And he says, if it's not he, if it's not God, he says, then who else could it be doing this to me? The idea is. Again, at this point, as we've talked about, Job is starting to develop kind of, you come know, a sense here, almost kind of like an attitude of fatalistic thinking towards God at this point. He's kind of getting to this point where, you know, nothing matters, good or bad. He's starting to kind of slip gears a little bit here, and we do that from time to time mentally and emotionally when we go through hard experiences. You know, God gives us grace and latitude. He, he knows how we wrestle, and Job's kind of at this point where he's kind of getting a little fatalistic. Everybody's guilty. We all deserve misery. Hardship's just a part of life, and it doesn't even matter, he's saying, if we do right or wrong. He says, God destroys the blameless and the wicked alike. And you could tell in his suffering, he's starting to have now some wrong ideas about the nature of God. And the character of God is something where Job's suffering is kind of starting to cloud his way of thinking, and his own emotions are causing him to come to wrong conclusions about God. And we can all be prone to doing that. Sometimes when you're in a season of suffering, you're going through something hard, or maybe you've gone through something very painful in your life that's been traumatizing. Unfortunately, what that can do sometimes is it can start to cloud our way of thinking, and it can even start to cloud our way of thinking about God. We start to come to wrong conclusions about God's nature that aren't true about God's nature or character, or our emotions that we're struggling with make us in our turmoil internally start to make wrong judgments about God or what God is or isn't doing. And we have to kind of keep ourselves in check. And look, folks, that's why it is very important. And we have the privilege of something Job did not have. We have the full counsel of the word of God, which is truth. And that's why the Bible says, you know, in Romans 12, even that we need to experience the renewing of our minds by being in the word of God, that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Because sometimes our thoughts and our heart intentions, they can get all convoluted and confused, and we don't even realize it in the midst of our struggle and our hardship or maybe processing something very painful or traumatic in our past, and we start thinking things about God or God's ways or what God thinks about us that are completely convoluted and wrong. And, and we see Job doing it here, and Job was a good and a godly man. So I know that you and I are just as much potentially subject to the same struggles in our lives. And that's why being in God's word is important. Staying in worship is important. Being with God's people that can help us process things is helpful sometimes. And we start to you know, miscalculate things about God's nature as Job is here. He says, verse 25, now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. They say eagles can swoop down over 100 miles an hour on their prey. And he knew that they were fast, but boy, that's, that is fast. And if I say I will forget my complaint and put on my sad face and wear a smile, I'm afraid of all my sufferings. 
I know that you will not hold me innocent. And if I am condemned, then why do I labor in vain? And if I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, that is try and clean myself up outwardly the way I present myself. Yet he says, you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would even abhor me. Well, that'd be kind of bizarre. Your own clothes actually can't stand you. Now, as a husband and having raised three daughters, that actually would have been pretty nice to keep from all the shopping sprees there. You know, just go to the store and close up. Get out of here. Don't buy me. You know, clothes are abhorring you. I mean, that'd be, be fantastic. Uh, but what, what Job's describing here again in verse 25 is just his continual daily frustration with his suffering. Because he says in verse 25, he says, my days, he says, they just all run together. And he says, every day I feel like I don't see anything good. It's just every day is just hardship and difficulty and day after day so it just all runs together it's all happening so fast and the picture here is like his days are, are, are just kind of slipping by and the suffering of each day just makes each day almost kind of feel like it has a, a worthless tone to it every day there's nothing good in every day it's just another day of hardship Another day of the same suffering, the same difficulties, and it starts to make life feel like it has no value. And Job even contemplates, you can tell in these verses, he says, I don't even know, you know, should I play the hypocrite amidst my suffering? He says there, verse 27, if I say, that is, I'd be lying, if I say, let me just forget my complaint and put off my sad face and wear a smile. Boy, we've never done that, right? Let me just act like everything's fine, forget that I'm really going through the worst season of my life and, and, you know, and put on my smiling face and put off my sad face. And, and Job says, but even if I did that, then God would just deal with me for my hypocrisy, he says. Even if I tried to clean up my act, I mean, we do that in front of each other, which a lot of times vain and worthless. But he said, I would just be playing the fool before God if I fake in that way. Verse 32, he makes some really interesting statements at the close of this chapter. He says, for he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. The idea is if a mediator could come into play, maybe he could take the rod of God's displeasure away from me. Very interesting. And do not let the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and I wouldn't fear him. I wouldn't be terrified of God's almighty power, but it is not so with me. Now notice what starts to happen here. In the midst of all this darkness and difficulty and hardship, you know, God right in the midst of this just brings a spark of light here because in the midst of Job's hardship, he starts actually to see things in the realm of the spirit that are absolutely incredible. Notice Job understood the huge gap between holy God and himself as a sinful and weak human being. And what does he start to do there? He starts to long for a mediator. You see what he says there? He says, God's not a man as I am. There's a gap between us. But he says, so I can't answer God directly that we could go to court together and just kind of come together and solve our matters. He says, and the problem is, he says, there's no mediator between me and God. There's no one that can be a go between a mediator between us both. The idea is who could lay his hand on both of us. Someone who could be a go between who could be 
in one hand touching divinity and with the other hand touching humanity in its weak and sinful state and be able to bring some degree of reconciliation between us, someone who could stand in the gap and bring us back together relationally so that this matter could be solved. And here, this is marvelous. Through Job's hardship, his heart is coming into alignment with the ultimate plan of God, which was to do what? Bring a mediator. To bring a mediator who could stand in the gap between holy, awesome, righteous God and weak, finite, and sinful humanity. And we know, of course, who that is. That was none other than Jesus himself. You know, Paul speaks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, specifically how we all needed this and how Jesus himself perfectly fulfilled this. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says this, for this, verse chapter 2, verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then he says this, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, that is humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. So Paul understood what Job understood in that ancient of day is that it is necessary for there to be a mediator between holy, righteous, awesome God and his divinity and weak, sinful, frail, broken humanity And he says the way that God accomplished that is he says it was good and acceptable in God's sight for God to actually become our Savior. Not even just to find a way to save us. God actually became our Savior to be able to reconcile that problem between weak, sinful humanity and holy, righteous God. And he says he desires all to be saved. And the way he did it is the one God exists And there's one mediator between God and men, and that was the man, Christ Jesus. That is that God, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, came being fully God, remaining completely divine, retaining all of his divinity, and added a second nature unto himself, which was humanity, taking flesh upon himself, so that he could simultaneously be fully God and fully human at the same time which would allow him to do what? Exactly what Job said. Someone who could have his hand upon divinity and his hand at the same time extended to humanity and could build the bridge as a mediator to be able to bring reconciliation between holy, righteous God and weak, sinful humanity in a perfectly just way so that we now could have access to God and direct relationship with God and forgiveness and acceptance through the mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled what he did, dying on the cross for our sins, taking the punishment of humanity and satisfying the justice of divinity at the exact same time. Marvelous. And Job understood this. Man, I wish there was a mediator. Oh, Job, just wait. There's one coming. Thank you for your prophecy. And I'm sure Job would say, well, I wish I didn't have to go through so much pain to give you that prophecy. But see, sometimes in the midst of the hardest hours, the most difficult things, God is doing things on a whole bigger, larger level we don't even realize. And we look at this now and we say, wow, that's marvelous, Job. There's Jesus right in the Old Testament. 
Thank you, Job. You just basically spoke about exactly what Jesus would be and what Jesus would do, who took the rod of God's displeasure away from humanity. And again, it just reminds us that when we're going through difficulties, it's not just about our personal experience alone. God is always working on multiple levels, man. And he's got different things going on. It's hard to see that when we're in the midst of things, but God has this amazing way to make all things work together for the good. And we see it even in these marvelous statements which picture Christ even right there in chapter 9. Well, chapter 10, let's just kind of just glance through this. It's pretty discouraging what Job's saying, so we don't want to camp here long. Chapter 10, Job concludes his statements by saying, My soul loathes my life. You can tell he's getting low now in chapter 10 here. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Notice he now begins to turn to God. He's just wrestling this out with God. He's I'm done talking to Bildad and Eliaphaz. I got to talk to God a little bit and, and give free course to my complaint. And he complains to God in the bitterness of his soul. He says, does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands? The idea is, God, I'm the work of your hands. Why would you oppress me as the work of your hands? And yet he says, it seems like you smile on the counsel of the wicked. You ever feel like that? God, I feel like that you're holding me back and you're smiling and blessing all the wicked people around me. You know, my next door neighbor who's smoking pot or living with his girlfriend and having immoral sexual relations. God, you're blessing his socks off. And here I'm trying to do what's right. And God, I feel like you're oppressing me. I, this doesn't make sense to me, God. And again, like the psalmist in Psalm 73, struggling with the same thing. Read that reality. Job's wrestling with this. He's trying to process what's going on. He says, verse four, do you have eyes of flesh? Or do you see as man sees? In other words, he's saying, God, are you looking at this the same way that Bildad is and Eliaphaz? I mean, is their perspective actually right? He's saying, I'm, I'm confused. Are your days like the days of a mortal man and your years like the years of a mighty man that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin? In other words, he's saying, God, is it possible what they're saying is true? Is that really the case? Are you looking at sin in my life, and, and I don't know, maybe what they're saying is right. Although you know that I'm not wicked, and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. Verse 8, he says, your hands, notice, have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity. And boy, that is true. We are an intricate human body. Do a little research on the human body, and it will blow your mind how intricate just the human body is. Certainly no way that evolved on its own. It takes more faith to believe that than to believe that God knit us together intricately, complexity, with all the order of our human bodies. And he says, God, your hands have made me. You fashioned me in intricate unity, yet, verse 8, yet you would destroy me? God, you made me, and now you're just going to turn around and destroy my life? Remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay. God, I'm just like soft, moldable clay, and you're the potter, and will you turn me now into dust again? God, you made me like clay, and now I just feel like you're crushing me like a potter who's done with a ruined vessel, and are you done with my life? Do you not pour me out like milk? 
and curdle me like cheese? God, I felt like you poured me out a glass of milk and then let me curdle like a bunch of rotten cheese, he says. Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and favor and your care is what has preserved my spirit. He says, God, I, I know that you've given me my life and it's been your care for me that's been the only thing that's noticed preserved my spirit that's all job had left at this point his body was falling apart but job understood there's a difference between the physical body and what is true and lasting which is the spirit of man and boy that's an important thing to remember when we go through hardship sometimes too to remember that this outward man is perishing but the inward man the spirit is renewed day by day and that we are spirits in a temporary body a temper, we put a lot of you know, emphasis on the physical body and the human body and health and exercise, and especially in our culture. You know, and sometimes we, we overemphasize the value of the physical frame. Well, it's, it's a temporary tent. We should be good stewards, but what's true and lasting is the spirit of man. And you can put all the effort you want into your physical body, but the important thing is it's your spirit that's going to last forever. And is your spirit right with God? Is your spirit in right relationship? Because that's what's eternal and will dwell somewhere eternally and will experience whatever you choose in regards to your relationship with God now before you're released from your physical body. He says, verse 13, and these things you have hidden in your heart. I know that it was with you. Now, what Job's kind of saying here is, God, it's almost as if I know what your hidden agenda was. He's almost kind of starting to accuse God a little bit here. It was with you, he says, that if I sin, then you mark me and you will not acquit me of my iniquity. In other words, he says, God, I feel like you've just been waiting all along for me to sin. Now, where did he get this idea from? Those friendly counselors. This is why God's going to be very disappointed and upset with Job's friends because they put ideas in Job's mind that's making him go down a wrong track of thinking. And again, this was never Job's reasoning, but because he's struggling, because he's suffering and he doesn't know why, now he's starting to doubt and listen to the voices of others around him. And he's starting to think, maybe they are right. I don't see any answers in the midst of his suffering. He's starting to question things that he believed. He says, God, maybe you have been looking to mark me out for my sin. And if I'm wicked, woe to me. Even if I'm righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I'm full of disgrace. See my misery? Don't you see my misery, God? If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion. I feel like you're being ferocious in your treatment with me. And again, you show yourself awesome. The idea is powerful in a terrorizing way against me. You renew your witness against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and war are ever with me. Notice, changes and war are ever with me. In other words, Job's implying there, God, I feel like every day is a battle. What does a war consist of? Constant battles. Continuous conflict. Never settled, never stable, constant changes. New battleground, new adjustments because of the battles, new wounds to address, new losses. It's, it's constant instability and it's constant battles. And he says, God, I feel like that that's what you've left me in, that my life's like a war, constant change, constant battle. Again, he's describing his suffering that he's in. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? 
Oh, that I had perished and no one had seen me. Oh, he says, I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. That is, again, he's saying, if I would just, if my life never would have came into being, it would have been better than what I'm experiencing. Are not my days few? Cease, he says, leave me alone that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return. He's talking about the place of the dead to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land of as dark as darkness itself as the shadow of death without any order where even the light is like darkness. Now you can tell Job's in a dark place as much as he keeps using the word dark, dark, dark and darkness. And even the land of the dead goes to show you what little light he had Uh, For the righteous, it's not a land of darkness. For the righteous, it's a relief when you die. It's not more darkness and suffering. But again, Job has limited understanding. He doesn't even have the privilege of you and I do. On the other side of the cross and our understanding that in the eternal dimension for the righteous, there's no more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering. We don't even need the light or the sun because the light of God is so bright and brilliant. But again, Job's, What's he doing? He's in a dark place mentally and emotionally. And when you suffer, sometimes that's what happens. You start to go to a dark place where you question why and, you know, why was I even born? It would have been better not to live than have to live in the midst of these hard things that I'm going through. And look, you could tell verse 20, he's really wrestling at this point and in a low place because he actually utters this prayer. Again, remember, he's talking to God. Look what he says, verse 20. He says, God, leave me alone that I can have a little comfort. Aren't you glad God doesn't answer all your prayers? God, would you just leave me alone? Just leave me alone. Just give me a little breather, would you? Give me some space, God. Aren't you glad that some of the prayers you prayed in dark spots (laughs) or hard times, God didn't answer? That God says, I won't leave you alone. Nope. That's one thing. I will not leave you. I will never leave you or forsake you. You may not even want me to be, but I will not leave you alone. I love you too much to do that. Well, thank goodness God loves us enough and is patient enough with us and understands our struggles in our humanity that he never leaves us alone. And that he just keeps working in the midst of our wrestlings and our conflict and keeps loving us and working in our lives until he brings us to that place where ultimately we begin to see things more clearly. And look, even if that ends up being eternity, I'm okay with that. Just don't leave me alone until you bring me in the glory.